We hear this a lot in the sports world. Coaches are more than just coaches. They're really teachers when they're at their best. I never dreamed of being a college coach. I was going to be a high school coach and teacher. That's what I wanted to do. Those are the people that I looked up to. To peel back the curtain a little bit, I've been pretty fortunate. My mom was a first grade teacher for over 30 years, and my dad was my lifelong coach in multiple sports. In fact, I have to mention, we won the North Carolina State Championship in baseball in 2000. Thanks, Dad. So I know what an important support system the teacher and coach can be for a kid, especially as they navigate through tough decisions that will shape their future. Up until the early 2000s, the high school coach, not an AAU coach or an Instagram account, the high school coach was a player's main advocate and basically a middleman between colleges and the players themselves. Well, Garf had a special ability to identify these talented coaches and showcase them at his camp. Isn't that right, Ali? Mike Fratello was a JV soccer coach <laughs> when, when Garf discovered him. And when he looked at a coach like a young Bobby Knight, when he looked at Dick Vitale, who was coaching in East Rutherford, New Jersey in high school, when he looked at Hubie Brown, who was coaching at Fairlawn High School in New Jersey, and all of these other guys that went on to become giants in the coaching fraternity, Garf was able to recognize the greatness in them while they were still no names in high school. In 1983, Garf was asked about the success of his five-star coaches. 58 of my resident coaches in 17 years, that's three and a half a year, coaches and counselors have gone on to pro and college coaching. It's hard to keep count of all the coaching trees rooted in Garf's camp, but by the time he hung it up, by his own calculation, there were 300 coaches who had gone on from five-star to the collegiate or pro game. Now, we don't have enough time to tell all 300 of their stories, but in this episode, I'll share some conversations I've had with some of the greatest teachers in basketball history, including a few special phone calls from Hubie Brown and some never-before-heard lectures from the camp. For my money, he is the greatest collegiate coach in the history of our game. We'll learn how Five Star became the Harvard of basketball instruction and find out about the late night spot where the coaches got their master's degree as I take you inside the think tank of basketball. There were backroom deals made there, and that's a good way to kind of say it. Think of this episode as your chance to listen in on basketball trade secrets from the best coaches ever to grace the game as we uncover the ingredients of the camp's secret sauce. I am Tate Frazier. Welcome to the world of Five Star. I am going to blow some stuff by you now that are going to improve your game, and you are a fool if you do not listen. Class was truly in session at Garf's camp, and the main show wasn't always provided by the otherworldly talent of the players. Instead, Garf provided a stage for a collection of brilliant, devoted disciples of Dr. Naismith's invention. There was no seminal moment bigger for a coach than to lecture at Five Star. They never paid you anything, but they did pay you because they paid you with that rite of passage. That was like being invited to speak before the Congress or the Senate. In fact, Garf loved it so much, he tried to fit in two lectures a day. One in the morning. The morning mini meltdown because it was so hot. And one after lunch. The after lunch lecture was so big. The place was packed. Sometimes, you know, you could hear a pin drop. Let's go all the way back to the first camp in 1966. Imagine being one of the 48 kids in the middle of nowhere New York 
and in walks a young, sharply dressed Chuck Daly. But I mean, Chuck Daly, I mean, these were like, these were legends. These were people that I watched on TV. As we now know, Garf had a love for the theater and the coaches at his first camp provided the show he'd always envisioned. But the real star was Fairlawn High School coach and teacher Hubie Brown. Hubie Brown's lectures at the camp were like watching Fred Astaire, his moves, his, his speech. He's the greatest hoop lecturer, alive, dead, or yet unborn. But you see, I'm going to ask you one question. And the question is, are you coachable? To give us a first-hand account, here's one of the original 48 campers and one of Hubie Brown's students at Fairlawn High School, Brendan Sir. His talent for teaching is unsurpassed. He was the best teacher in our school, and he taught business law. And you didn't take that if you were going to college. Coincidentally, Brendan Sir would go on to be an assistant coach on Chuck Daly's bad boy Pistons teams. He used to always tell me later on when we got to coaching, prerequisites to be a good coach is you have to be the best teacher. Another former camper turned Georgia Tech head coach, Bobby Crimmins. I think you're supposed to speak for like 30 to 45 minutes. And Yubi would go for at least an hour and a half, nonstop. Howie Garfinkel used to have to come out and stop him. He would do two lectures every week in the camp and the place went nuts. To give you a glimpse of what Garf and the rest of the players are talking about, here's a never-before-heard clip from Hubie Brown's afternoon lecture at Five Star in 1995. Do you have the drop step, jump back, floater shot in the lane? You blew by the guy. Here comes a up, back, floater. You have it. You have your baby hook in your left foot. Do you have your jump back, floater? What do you have? You point guards, and you two guards, and you three guys. Don't give me that crap, you're gonna dunk. And that was just the beginning. The third future Hall of Fame lecturer was a former Villanova All-American turned assistant coach, George Raveling, who made history as the first assistant coach to lecture at Garf's camp. You gotta open up your arms and let success enter into your body. You gotta let success enter into your mind. You gotta wanna be successful. This wasn't just an honor. It was Coach Raveling's big break, and he wasn't taking this opportunity lightly. At the time, I didn't really think about it. I was so nervous. And when I found out I was going to speak, I spent two days practicing my delivery and what I wanted to do because this was one of those singular moments that failure is not an option. This can be a career maker or it could be a career breaker. To give you a taste of what I'm talking about, here's a snippet from Coach Raveling's never-before-heard lecture in the summer of 1975. Let's get this straight about people. I think about 60% of people in life are assholes anyway. I honestly believe that. As long as you're striving for success, there's always going to be somebody talking about you. There's always going to be somebody saying, oh, this guy ain't shit, or he can't do this, or so forth. So you know they're going to be talking about you, so don't worry about it. Just keep on keeping on, that's all. And they can let them keep talking and talking and talking. And while they're talking, you're getting the job done. Yes, he was really fired up. He had so much enthusiasm. He, you know, he made so much sense. If you want to get here, this is what you have to do. Right up until the time that Garth left the planet, he would always remind me, Rave, don't ever forget, I had so much confidence in you 
that you were the first assistant coach to ever speak at Five Star. When you put it in this historic context, it was an unbelievable achievement opportunity. This pivotal moment would catapult Coach Ravling's career as he would become a three-time Pac-10 Coach of the Year at Washington State and USC before moving on and taking over as the Global Marketing Director of Basketball at Nike. For many coaches in the five-star family, one of the most memorable moments came when Garf gave one of his legendary introductions. It didn't matter if you were future Providence coach Pete Gillen or a young head coach at Army like Coach K. It was always going to be unforgettable. He introduced you. Everybody sounded, you know, like they were a superstar. You know what I mean? Every coach felt like, oh, my God, is that me? You couldn't live up to it. <laughs> yeah, he'd be given the introduction saying, is there somebody else speaking? Really? And he was unbelievable on top of every coach that was there, knew your background, knew your history, and uh, you waited for him to introduce you. It was like an ego boost. Coach Cal mentioned it was an ego boost, which probably helped the youngest five-star lecturer in the camp's history, Rick Pitino. Well, you have 200 campers sitting there on the, on the floor at 2 o'clock waiting for the camp speech. And, you know, you're talking about UB Brown and Bobby Knight and some of the big names in college basketball, pro in college, giving these lectures. And it was sort of like, for Goff, Carnegie Hall. Uh, he was introducing Judy Garland or Tony Bennett or a famous conductor. He was introducing somebody very special to walk out. Remember one time Rick Pitino came and gave a lecture and was in the lecture, was like showing moves, three-point stands and offensive weapons, and he would play one-on-one -on -one against guys, and he could play. 1988 Most Outstanding Player of the Camp, Grant Hill, remembers being mesmerized by Pitino's moves. <laughs> like he had all that stuff down, jab step, shot fake. I mean, he was so skilled, and he was doing it against campers, really good players. And so I remember just sort of being blown away that, you know, Patino, and he was obviously, you know, everybody was younger back then, but he could get out there on the court and do it. He was pulling out guys to demonstrate that he was recruiting, and uh, he was working them hard. Hall of Fame head coach at Villanova and former five-star camper Jay Wright. And Rick Patino was working hard, and he's, you know, this legendary young coach, and he was at Providence at the time, and I was like, man. I can't believe how hard he's working. He was sweating, doing layups, reverse layups, hitting jumpers. I'm like, man, this is a head coach. This is what it takes. I got a lot of work to do. We worked for $100 a week, and it started out at $75. Actually, a camp lecture gave you more than the whole week. So you, everybody was dying to get that camp lecture. So when it came time for me to be a, a camp lecturer at a very young age, I think I was maybe 21 when I gave my first camp lecture, there was quite astonishing for me to sit there as a camper, go on as a counselor and give that lecture. You know, sometimes you go, you'd go to camp to see kids kind of doze on. Rick Pitino was speaking. Everyone's eyes were laser focused on him. You could hear a pin drop. It's wild to fathom that Rick Pitino had such an influence on a young Jay Wright. But that's what Five Star was all about. A meeting of the best basketball minds all sharing knowledge in one place every summer. I wonder how many guys who spoke at that camp are in the Basketball Hall of Fame. It would have to be at least 20. Well, at last count, over 10% of the coaches in the Hall of Fame had either worked or lectured at Five Star. Names like Larry Brown, 
Roy Williams, Mike Fratello, Jim Beheim, Raleigh Massimino, and Dean Smith to name a few. Garth made them all feel like they were on Broadway. It was like he was writing up something to get your salary doubled in the next year. Isn't that right, Coach Raveling? Sometimes I thought the introduction was more self-congratulatory for Garth because he would present you as if it was one of the apostles just came down. He was driving through Holmesdale and he came in and asked me, could he speak? The real foundation of Garth's teaching camp was formed with the addition of his favorite coach from Friendship Farms. You remember the basketball camp where Garth first met Rick Pitino and scouted Lou Alcindor. Well, that's where he found Five Star's first head coach and the winningest college basketball coach of the 20th century, Bobby Knight. For my money, he is the greatest collegiate coach in the history of our game. He is a legend in his own time, a coach for all times, Robert Montgomery, Bobby Knight. With Knight came the implementation of stations. This was unique and specific to the five-star camp. Isn't that right, Garth? Second year of the camp, Coach Knight from West Point came as our head coach. And he said, uh, now we're putting in stations this week because we hadn't done that before. Stations were from 9.30 to 11. It was 12 different skills. Kids would do four a day for three days and then repeat at a higher level. Five-star co-founder Will Klein remembers working out the kinks with Coach Knight. Of course, we had to modify him because one of the stations Knight put in was running through rubber tires. There were a lot of tires on the campus, and kids were hurting ankles going through, so I had to cancel that because the trainers couldn't keep up with it. The station soon took on a life of their own, becoming one of Five Star's hallmarks. It's also where coaches would showcase their ability to teach, not only to Garf, but to the other coaches coming in to recruit at the camp. Not only were the players competing, the coaches were competing to be discovered by college coaches. In the case of John Calipari, one way to put your name on the map and make the leap from orange-clad camper to an instructor was simply being at the right place at the right time. It also didn't hurt that Five Star was literally in his backyard. So when Garf needed someone to cover a shooting station, a young Calipari was ready when his name was called. When I went away to school, I came back and was sitting in the stands. And Garf looks at me and said, kid, what are you doing? I said, I just came down to hang out. He said, well, great, I need you to do a shooting station. So I went and did the shooting station. He watched me almost the whole time because they never had kids out of high school work the camp before. If you had a station now, you better have been prepared. You have better spent time thinking it through, writing it down, knowing what you were trying to get done on day one, day two, day three, day four. And if you weren't, Garf wouldn't have you do a station again. And if Garf liked you, he would play matchmaker with some of the top talent at his camp, as Pete Gillen remembers well. And I said, hi, Garf, how you doing? He says, see that guy over there under the basket? Try to show him a couple of moves. I walk over, I see this big guy, he's about six, seven, about 240, 250. So I start working with him, a couple, couple of jump hook, couple of moves inside. And I said, boy, Garf, I learned pretty quick. He says, hey, Schmuck, that's Mark Aguirre. He's the best player in the country. No wonder he worked him pretty quick. The teaching set the camp apart from everyone else, and Bob Knight is totally responsible for that. By now, we all know we need the teachers, but we can't have a true camp without counselors. So let's introduce the head counselor of Five Star, the man tasked with taking care of the people part of the equation. Enter Dennis Jackson, a.k.a. 
The Sandman. The Sandman. Each coach that came there that was a college coach was assigned to a bunk. But those guys had to be supervised. And so because of my expertise as a counselor, and I was older than most of the guys in college because I had finished, I became the head counselor. So we had a head coach of the camp and we had a head counselor. Dennis Jackson spent decades working at Garth's camp and served as an assistant coach at the University of Pennsylvania. He also was inducted into the five-star basketball hall of fame in 2000. And my job was to work the kids out in the morning, referee games. I had a station that I taught, which was usually a shooting station, and then actually run the camp, get the kids up in the morning and put them to bed at night. And that's how I became the Sandman. That's how I got that name, the Sandman. After the canteen closed and the Sandman put the players to bed, the real fun for the coaches began at a truly special place. It was part basketball think tank and part clubhouse, right down the road called the Fireside. Well, that's when the coaches would all go down to the Fireside for getting their masters and doctorates in coaching basketball. I'm, I'm not making that as a smart remark. I'm talking about a lot of guys grew from 11.30 at night to two o'clock when the Fireside would close. We would go to the Fireside each night down the road for food because the food at Five Star was just darn awful. And at the end of the week, I would turn around and Will would have a check for me of $100. I would turn around and give him a check for $25 because we borrowed money to go eat at the fireside. So we were basically working for free. And when you're working for free, you develop a lot of friendships. And we'd go to the fireside at, at, at nighttime and we'd have something to eat, a few beers, and we would move the salt and pepper shakers around and talk about drills and Things they don't do today. Today the guys get together and all they talk about is recruiting. Rick Pitino was a fireside regular and certainly knew how to unwind after a long, hard day of coaching. So when he found out Mitch Bonaguro was about to get married, he decided to take things into his own hands. Rick Pitino gave me a bachelor party. June 19, I believe it was 78. I was getting married at end of June, early July, and they found out about it and it, it was some night. I had to get up the next morning for stations. You know, Patino came in with a big thing of cold water and, you know, spilled it on me. And uh, I mean, I would have never made stations, but I, I, I mean, I had my bachelor party in, in the fireside. At this time, Mitch Bonaguro was an assistant coach at Villanova under Raleigh Massimino, and they were scheming up ways to contend for a national title. They would eventually win one in 1985 over Georgetown, the biggest upset in NCAA tournament history. It was the camaraderie, it was the backroom deals, it was the almost hate, like you talk to guys about different things in there, you know, that you might not talk to them about the camp. You know, like if my head coach, Roly Massimino was there, you know, we'd go over the players really in detail there. You know, I wouldn't tell him much of the camp, but when we went to the fireside, I'd give him the, my sheets and I, my evaluations, you know? So it was, it was kind of like Al McGuire described it. There were backroom deals made there. And that's a good way to kind of say it. Look. I don't know how much people are talking to you about it, but there was as much that happened after the camp ended with the coaches and staff as what happened during the camp. The relationships were built after camp ended. You had coaches coach their last game in the evening in the clothes they were going out in to go have a beer, to hang out, to laugh. And us counselors, many times we were arriving at six in the morning to get like back on camp, to get up, to go do the stations at eight and figuring out when am I going to take an hour nap. The best part of the night at the fireside for all of us, I think, was to watch Garth, who had worked his butt off all day, you know, and 
you know, doing what he had to do there. Actually come down, he'd get something to eat, and the next thing you know, he would be, his head would be flat on the bar, sound asleep. And we had literally had to carry him out. Not, didn't drink. All that late night fun quickly fell by the wayside when the next day came and every coach was hungry to find a competitive advantage on and off the court, especially during the draft. Like a story Pete Gillen told me about a coach named Frank Marino from the Bronx. So for three years in a row, Frank Marino, the high school coach, got the number one pick, got the best player in camp. So I said to Goff, I says, Goff, how the heck does he get the number one pick every I get, I get like eighth and ninth, and I got my bell rung. I'm like one and nine. One and, I says, how does he get the best pick every year, three years in a row, and his team wins the championships or in the finals? He says, hey, he palms the one. He doesn't put the one in the hat. Okay, he's got the one in his hand. He shakes him up. Everybody picks it out. He picks last, and he gets number one because he never put the one in the hat. So he had the first pick. So Goff was laughing. He, he was in on that. There are overt rivalries and covert ones as you go down the laundry list of coaches and instructors. Part of the reason these coaches were so successful is because they were success-driven, and their egos were such that they wouldn't allow limitations to be placed upon who they were and how they taught the game. It's that fire that made up Five Stars DNA. And it was evident at lunchtime when the coaches went head-to-head and got their competitive energy out on the court. Everybody was competitive. When I got older, you began to play the coaches game at lunch. All the coaches, the guys that were working in the camp and the assistant and head coaches that were there to scout the kids. You all just came together and you'd have a couple courts of coaches playing too. Rick Pitino used to love to play at lunchtime. And so uh, I loved playing. So we'd go out there and play. And uh, all of a sudden Rick Pitino would be yelling, scream, move, pass. And I, I finally told him, I said, hey, will you shut up? I just want to play basketball. But I knew right then and there that Rick Pitino was going to be a great coach. I remember getting in a fight with a guy by the name of Tony Relvers because I got into it with Pete Carrill, of all people, and Tony was uh, his sidekick, his assistant coach, and he wasn't gonna let Pete fight me, so he stepped in and we got into it. There was a fight every single day in the coaches' games. It was highly, highly competitive. Quick pause here because I have to point this out. The coach that Rick Pitino mentioned was Pete Carrill, the Princeton head basketball coach and the inventor of the Princeton offense. But Patino's biggest impact on the camp didn't come while he was playing games. It came with the invention of Station 13. A few years go by, I came up with what's Station 13, which was the afternoon anybody who wanted to work on their offensive improvement, their skills to develop, away from the morning uh, stations would come to me if they didn't have a game. It got me out of getting up early as a coach, early in the morning to teach those stations. And Garf would always have one of the best teachers in the camp doing Station 13 by himself. He might have 100 kids there, and they would ask questions, and he would answer them, he'd get them out on the court, and he would do all that. A huge thing for me was to always watch Station 13. Not just uh, the players, but the coaches who coached it. A lot of you know, people talk about how many scholarships and where that kids got, but how many jobs coaches got from being seen or interacting, the friendships, it just multiplied. The Duke five-star tree went back, of course, to Vic Bubis, then on to Chuck Daly, Hubie Brown, and to this very day, Coach K. Here's an exclusive clip from 1989, where Garf welcomes Coach K 
officially into the five-star family. Put on an orange shirt on days, rare days, like this. Rather than throw Coach K a ball, you've been doing it for 24 years, well, the strong shirt, making an honorary five-star message. You're right at the end of your week, and I think a number of you are probably a little bit tired. I would recommend very strongly that you take, take advantage of these last two days, because being here is something special. You can hear the mutual admiration between Garf and Coach K. Coach K's presence at the camp helped influence college basketball legends like Grant Hill, Christian Leitner, Tommy Amaker, Jay Williams, and Steve Wojciechowski in their decision to go play for the Blue Devils. And that's just to name a few. Here's how Pete Gillen felt about Garth's favorite coach. I said, Coach K don't need any help. It's like uh, IBM, Fortune 500, I'm, I'm big at donuts. I'm, uh, you know, I'm uh, at VMI, we need help, Garth. Which brings us to an age-old question and something I've been wondering for quite some time. What really makes Coach K a great coach? Here's the great talent evaluator, Tom Kinchowski, to share with us his honest take. Well, a lot of things. First of all, the ability to teach, right. the ability to lead. And that's where Mike Krzyzewski is peerless. He just, he instills a confidence in his players and a determination. He's very good at communicating his competitiveness and his focus. Simply being a good basketball coach was only half the battle. The camp really showcased one of the well-known realities of the coaching business. It all comes down to networking, and Five Star was the perfect place to build one. The basketball world is built on contacts, and there's no better place than this camp to make them. Hey, good morning, Coach. Good to see you. Hey, Ben, glad to see you. There's no better example to show Five Star's network in action than a story I love about Rick Pitino. While he was a senior playing at UMass, Patino was debating whether to play professionally overseas or follow Garf's advice to become a coach. So when the duo went to get a drink after his game and saw Hawaii head coach Bruce O'Neill at the hotel bar, Garf hatched a plan of his own. Famous hotel after the games, everybody would go to the Statler Hilton to have a drink. And that was the early years of Hawaii 5 on TV. And I'm 21, and all I remember was the young women in, in Hawaii 5 so I in the back room was Hawaii with the head coach, their cheerleaders and their team. And I said, Goff, if you get me a job at the University of Hawaii, I'll leave playing professional basketball and go on as a grad assistant. He said, well, the guy takes my service. Let me, let's go up to him. We went up to him and Bruce O'Neill had a few beverages. And I said, coach, you have any openings? You mind if I drop you a note, apply for the job? He said, that'd be great. I said, I'm looking for somebody to hire from Five Star because Obviously, we had an advantage at that time. We're working the camp with all these great players, and we had a segue into finding out what they're all about. I also had UB Brown and Chuck Daly write a, a note of recommendation as well. Obviously, I didn't think of that. Goff thought of that. And it didn't stop there. Garf had Coach Calipari's back from the very start. He called Larry Brown when I was at Kansas and said, you got to keep this guy on your staff. It's a must. I mean, he did that. That was me. Well, do that to 100 coaches or more. All of the assistants I hired at UMass were my friends from Five Star. I mean, we had the youngest staff maybe ever assembled in the history of college basketball. Now, we can't discuss all 300 coaches to change the basketball landscape, but they all share something in common. 
they benefited from the secret sauce that made Five Star so special. It was the teaching, the exposure, the sharing of basketball knowledge at the fireside. And as Coach Calipari frankly put it, Access and opportunity. And then it became about relationships. And I'm, I'm telling you that not only did I do it that way, but other coaches, they got jobs and the people they got close to, they got close to at Five Star. Garth's fraternity of coaches elevated the game of basketball as we know it, while solidifying his legacy in the process. And as Hubie Brown told me too many times to count, it is the best teaching camp there ever was. But he also reminded me, this has always been big business. And there's more to just the playing, okay? We can't be naive here. Unfortunately for the camp and for Garf, the coaches who were on the outside looking in were complaining about Five Star's major influence on college basketball and beyond. And that wasn't going to work for the NCAA and major shoe companies looking to control grassroots basketball in the summertime. On the next episode of The World of Five Star, We'll explain how Gar flew too close to the summer sun. It was the 200 coaches that were watching surrounding the court that were complaining, and they, they put the pressure to the NCAA to stop it. The story behind the shoe companies operating their own camps under Garf's nose. What they said to both of us was, you know, pattern it after Five Star. And why the NCAA stepped in to stop Five Star in its tracks. The next legislation was a Division I coach can't work a private camp, period. I am Tate Frazier, and this is the World of Five Star.